chapter 20, and we complete the message we entitled, The Lord Who Sanctifies You. And we're getting that from the compound name in Leviticus 20 and verse 8, where Moses writes, God is speaking, and you shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. Jehovah Kadesh is the compound name, and from the structure of verses 7 and 8 are outlined as we began last week was, because the Lord is holy, and we looked at that, what does it mean that God is holy? He's set apart, He's unique, He's not like us, He's not like angels who are holy. He is infinitely above and apart and great and majestic, He is a one of a kind, unique God, there's nothing like Him anywhere. Not even close. And God declares that about Himself. That's reality. Because the Lord is holy, the Lord, Jehovah Kadesh, makes you holy. And we looked at both a permanent holiness that God gives us that we rest in by faith, receive by faith. We have been sanctified once and for all by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Once for all means never to be repeated. It's done. Jehovah sanctifies us. And Leviticus reveals the sacrificial system to point to the inability of Israel or anybody to make themselves holy. What we needed was the perfect sacrifice. We needed Jehovah Kadesh himself to give himself, for which he did, a perfect willing sacrifice to make us permanently holy. And then, out of that permanence, Out of that completeness, we are progressively made holy. We saw in the same context, Hebrews 10.14. For by one offering he hath perfected forever. That's good news, beloved. Forever. Nothing can add. Nothing can take away. You are forever in the sight of God made holy by being united to your Savior. But who is united? Who is permanently holy? Those that are being sanctified. Notice the progression, the present tense verb. You're being made holy. So, being made holy can only come from already having been made holy. So that whatever we're doing, whatever holiness is, is not contributing to our holiness. It's not contributing to the purity, to the holiness, to the righteousness of Christ. It's only receiving it. And by receiving it through the instrument of faith, we could call that the pathway of holiness, faith receives all that Christ is, His rightness, His purity, His holiness. And then faith keeps receiving who Christ is by promises and makes progress. And I don't want to convey the word progress to mean you're always going upward, but you're always going. You're moving forward to the high calling and hope of God that He's given us in Jesus Christ. So we're advancing, we're moving forward, we're growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, we'll close today this message on, the Lord says then that you should be holy, which means you're to be active in this. And He says in verse 7, sanctify therefore yourselves on the basis of God's holiness, on the basis of your permanent holiness, and on the basis that it's the Lord that is sanctifying you, therefore you pursue, you sanctify yourself. Now if we were to draw this on a chalkboard, theologically in a classroom, 
we would, we would put this on the board and we would go to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 and talk about theologically uh, how that works. And you know the passage where Paul says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Sanctify yourself. On what basis? Because it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. So God works all of your sanctification and you work all of your sanctification. God is at work and you are at work. Whatever progress and holiness you make, it is Jehovah Kadesh that makes that progress and whatever progress you make in holiness, it is you that makes that progress. And Paul just lays them out side by side. The confidence we have of ever moving one step closer to God in holiness is because God is in you. So that when you're willing and you're working, you're willing and you're obeying, it's because God is doing the work and God is making you willing and you're doing the work and you're being willing. And the Bible just plants those side by side. And it's by faith, the Bible says, that it may be by grace. Why? That God so secures and maintains His own glory in your pursuit of sanctification that He eliminates boasting. So that at the end of the day, whatever holiness you have gained in practice out of being holy already, all the glory goes to God. All boasting is excluded. By the law of works? Nay, Paul says, but by faith. And so the instrument of both permanent holiness and progressive is faith. But we don't want to just talk in theological terms, and I don't mean by that we, we don't speak theologically. Theology is just the study of God, whether we draw it on a board or we talk about it. We want to now speak about sanctifying yourself and what it means in your experience. Not just looking at it in the third person on a chalkboard, but what is your experience of being holy? When the Bible says, sanctify yourselves... When God says, I want you to be holy, what is your experience? How does that work itself out? What would that look like, as we often say from text of the Bible? So there are three things we're going to talk about. And they conveniently outlined with the letter P. Right? The possession of holiness, your identity. Find that right in the text, in Leviticus. We're going to start in Leviticus and we'll move out. The power of holiness, the truth of God. How does the truth of Leviticus make anybody holy? I mean, that's a difficult book, isn't it? And then third, the practice of holiness, your obedience. For what does God say when you're holy? You keep my statutes and you do them, right? Possession, power, and then practice. This is your experience. This is what our experience of holiness should be. After having been made permanently holy, positionally, by God in Christ. So we see this in verse 26, or let me get verse 25 of, of chapter 20, where Moses, God speaking through his pen, still speaking of separation and holiness, he would say in verse 25 of Leviticus 20, Ye shall therefore put difference between clean beasts and unclean, and between unclean fowls and clean. And you shall not make your souls abominable by beast or by fowl or by any manner of living thing that creepeth on the ground, 
which I have separated from you as unclean. Verse 26, and you shall be holy unto me. Three reasons. You shall be holy in that text. One, as we've seen, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. I'm holy, says God. That's the foundation. That's the basis. The second reason you shall be holy, speaking to Israel. For I have severed you from other people. The word sever is not cutting off, but separated you. You shall be holy, God says. Why? For I'm holy, and I've severed you. I've separated you from other people. Now here's number three. And the possession of holy holiness. You are mine. Are you looking at the text? You belong to me. That's the possession of holiness. If we don't get this right, if we don't understand that, holiness goes off the tracks. God emphatically says over and over to Israel, I redeemed you, you belong to me. It's a question of your identity. Identity is the fact about who or what something or a person is. The simple question of identity is, who are you? You would think such a simple question would not have much impact on how you live, but it means everything as it relates to holiness. Who are you? Right? When we try to derive our identity from something created, something in the world... Paul David Tripp calls it something horizontal instead of vertical. It creates a mess in our lives. Because identity is trying to find a sense of meaning, purpose, and fulfillment in who we are. And God says, you need to find your meaning, your purpose, and your fulfillment in the fact that I own you. Now that sounds like a bad thing in our American way of thinking. But it's a good thing. God says, you belong to me. And I want you to think of yourself as belonging in my family and to me. That's your identity. That's who you are. Now think about the ways we try to find meaning and purpose and value and fulfillment in identity. Like in our possessions, right? If you find identity in the house you live in and the car you drive, then all your energy and time and money is going to be pouring into your house, your car, your possessions. Why? Because that defines me. That's who I am. I'm the person that has that car. I'm the person that wears those clothes. I'm trying to derive my meaning and my purpose from what I own. And so it drives me to use all my time in working and and, and maintaining those things. Things we must own, things we have, but things we don't. Have our identity in. Now when you put your identity there, it leaves you empty. Why? Because the house begins to rot. Oh, and then you got to remodel and redo or buy another one and do it all over again. And the car gets dense and rust and you have to buy another one and another one and another one. And the clothes, well, when you get my age, you don't even know what's in or out. It cannot bring you fulfillment. Or... In your intelligence, right? Then what happens? You're known as a smart person. Then you start forgetting everything. Or in your success, 
how does success as an identity circumvent holiness? Because if your meaning and value and purpose is being successful and your achievements, then you've got to sustain that. And you have no time for holiness. You have no time for loving God and loving others, which is the essence of holiness, because all your time is spent in who you are. Who am I? I am a success. I am an achiever. I'm a hard worker. Those things are not bad unless you derive your sense of value, purpose, and meaning from those things. You won't be holy. God says, you're mine. You belong to me. This is where you get your sense of purpose. I'm holy. I've separated you. I've called you out of darkness into light. You belong to me. What about your looks? You've been told all your life you're so handsome and so beautiful. And so you are. But then the wrinkles come. And the body bulges. And the muscles go from the top to the bottom. And no matter how hard you try, they'll never come back like they were. I'm sorry, old guys. It's just not happening. I wish it would, but it just won't. And what does it leave you? Empty. And you don't pursue holiness because your identity isn't what you look like. So everything, all your energy, all your passion is put into your identity And then it leaves you empty because it fades. And then there's athleticism. Now the reason I mention that one is because I had an experience with this just recently. Athleticism. Just coordination, ability, physical body. There was this bag of greenery that Peggy told me to put on top of the armoire in a basket. And I couldn't reach it so I just pitched it up there. Well, it didn't land exactly right. It was hanging over. And I thought, I'm just going to jump over there and tap that in. I don't think I got two inches off the ground. I thought, what on earth? It's like I would jump and my feet wouldn't leave the ground. Now, I used to. I could jump. I could grab the rim. I never could slam it in there. But I could jump. I could run. But now, it takes everything I've got just to jump an inch off the ground. Now, I can talk about glory days and probably embellish them and make them look a lot better than they really were. What am I trying to do with that? I'm trying to go back in the past just to find some meaning, some purpose, some value, some fulfillment in what I was because now I'm empty if I try to find my fulfillment in what I can do. Now, none of those things are bad in and of themselves, but we always try to find our sense of value and purpose We attach ourselves to things which are going to let us down. They'll make us delusional, empty, disappointed. Disappointed. Beloved, God is saying the real key to holiness. The the beginning place is He redeemed you. He severed you. He chose you to be His. Now when the Bible uses this idea... In the Old Testament, it uses a Hebrew word called segula, which means you're special. Now, we read this this morning. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God connects holiness to your identity and the fact that you're a special treasure to God. That's His words, not mine. I wouldn't say that about me, and I wouldn't say that about you, but God says it about all those that are in Christ. And He wants you to think, in a right way biblically, that you're a special possession of God. You belong to God. So again, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, God says, 
You're to destroy the idols and images when you come into Canaan. You don't let intermarriages take place because they'll draw you into idolatry. Why? Verse 6, because you are a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people. There's the word. A special people unto himself above all the people on the face of the earth. So it seems that God would actually sing this song to you. You're special to me. You're special to me. I can't even tell you how special you are. How is it that sinners can be special to a holy God? How is it that He can call us His special treasure? Exodus chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. You saw how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Therefore, if you keep My commandments and do them, you shall be a peculiar treasure. Same word. means a possession, a valued property. Now, we know something about valued property in Huntsville right now, don't we? I've talked to some of you that have tried to bid on houses and everybody else values the same piece of property. Much more value than what the price is. You have to go way above it. And then 20 people come in and you have a bidding war. Your value, you being a treasure to God is not because you're a treasure. Now, you you probably were already there and you're thinking. You're being a special people is not because you're special. It's because the value is all God's. And when you belong to God, your value is owing to His value. Your being a treasure is owing to His being a treasure, an infinite treasure. So the value is not intrinsic. It's not intrinsic. It's owing to the fact that what? God has chosen you not because you're special, but to be a special people. You see that in the text? God's sovereign choice has marked you out to be His own special holy people. Therefore, the value is in God's choice. The value is in God's love. And what is the aim of belonging to God? He brings you to Himself. That's your identity. There's your value. There's your meaning. There's your purpose. God has redeemed you and called you to be His, to bring you to Himself. Now He's going to speak further about why we're special in the fact that we're not special in and of ourselves. Look at this in verse 7. The Lord did not set His love upon you nor choose you because... You were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. See, to be more, to be greater than other peoples, to be wealthier, more powerful, greater nation, you weren't. You were the fewest. What is God saying? I chose you to be a special people, but not because you're special, because my love is special. My love is a treasure, and I have set it upon you. I have marked you out to be a recipient of my divine love. Therefore, you are a special people because you've been brought to God to be holy, to be separate. Now, that won't work, men, with your wives on Valentine's Day. If she says to you on Valentine's Day, why did you marry me to begin with? And you say... It was not a thing about you at all. It wasn't the way you looked. 
your character, your smile, your eyes, your hair, your morality. It was absolutely zero about you. But you've got some explaining to do. But that's what God is saying to us, isn't it? He loved you because He loved you. Period, exclamation point, end of the story. There is no cause in you whatsoever that God would divinely set His love upon you. So the value is in the sovereign love of God that He deemed, that He willed, that He chose to make you a recipient of divine love. There's an expression of humiliation in the sport called basketball. That when someone dunks on someone or posterizes someone, yes, I know these phrases because of my sons, I admit it. They do this thing like this and they go, and they run down the court with their hand like that. It means I, you're low, I just put you down. Beloved, the love of God is saying this to you all the way down to the floor. It humbles us that God would divinely love us for no reason, no cause in us. It should put us down. Not because God posterized us, because He lifted us up in Christ to be the people that He calls His own valued property. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body and your soul, which are God's. He owns you. And that's the best possible ownership you could ever ever be a part of what is your identity where do you get a sense of purpose when the wrinkles come and the athleticism fades and you can't jump and you can't throw a ball and you're not successful and you don't look so good and you're not so smart it's in the most high God that's your identity if we don't find it there We'll spend all our energy and everything else except where God aims that we do it, which is in belonging to Him, being brought to Him. Now look what he says. Because the Lord loved you, because He would keep the oath which He swore unto your fathers. Oh, so it's the fathers that are special people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes, the father Abraham, which is a moon-worshipping idolater. He's not so special. Yeah, it was Isaac. The one who told his wife, look, you tell that king, I'm your brother. Save me. I'm not sure what's going to happen to you. He did just like his father. It's Isaac, the one who rejected the prophecy of the will of God. The elder shall serve the younger. But he was going to give the birthright to the elder until God providentially intervened. The other guy, what about Jacob? He's so special. He was a trickster and a deceiver from his mother's womb, grabbing his brother by the heel. No, no, God just swears. To the fathers because he chose them and their seed after them. And he set his divine love on them. Not because any of them are special. But now they're the special people of God. Why? Because of the uniqueness, the value, the holiness of God who's brought these people to himself. Why? For purpose, value, fulfillment in him. For holiness. Verse 8, or 9 rather. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God, the faithful God. The faithful God. Now this is important here. If God's choice of you in making you holy and setting you apart 
and you belonging to Him is owing to you being special, then your being special has to keep God faithful to you. Right? If it's based on what you do, what you're about, who you are, then you've got to be faithful for God's love to remain on you, right? If that's the condition for it, if this is conditional love and conditional election. What does God say? Know therefore, He's the faithful God. When you're not so special, when you're not so successful, when you're a failure, and yes, even when you sin, God is faithful to keep covenant with you. Why? Because He set His love upon you. He redeemed you from all iniquity. And He has brought you to Himself. So we must get our identity in Christ. Listen to Colossians 3 where Paul does this. He makes the connection with holiness and identity to the church of Colossae. In fact, it's done all over the New Testament. He would say, And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, bond or free, but all are in Christ. All are in Christ. What's he speaking about? Identity. Who are you, church of Colossae? Well, I'm a Jew, I'm a Greek. No, you're not. I mean, culturally, we can maintain our distinctives in terms of where we're from, what country, and what we're about. Those aren't obliterated. But Paul says, you're not Jew, you're not Gentile, you're not a bond, you're not uh, free, you're not a barbarian or a Scythian anymore, you're all in Christ. Now notice the impact of identity and holiness. Verse 12 of Colossians 3. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, long-suffering, forgiveness. What's that? Holiness. Comes from what? Identity. Who are you? You're the elect of God. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. You've been chosen. You've been set apart. God has put His love upon you. God is drawing you near. That's position. That's identity. You're holy. Permanently. Fully. He's made you holy. That's identity. That's who you are in Christ. I'm in Christ. You're beloved of God. Three statements of identity in Christ. Why? Now therefore, put on holiness. Because if our identity is found horizontally, horizontally, holiness is not progressive, it's regressive. It begins to decline. Because rather than taking time to be holy, to love God and love your neighbor, you're taking time to advance and to sustain your identity in the world. Who are you? You need to answer that question. Who are you? I'm in Christ. He's marked me out. He's made me holy. He loves me gloriously, amazingly. And now this is my purpose. Put on therefore. Pursue holiness. Right in the book of Leviticus, we find what the New Testament affirms. That God is holy. He severed them and separated them so that they would belong to God. A valued property. Not because of us, but solely based on God's value, God's glory.
So that's the first thing, possession. So you, you need to answer that today. Are you in Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and taken up your cross and followed Him? Is that your identity? Now, whatever comes in life, whatever comes, you can maintain through your identity, purpose, meaning, and fulfillment through holiness. Loving the holy God and loving one another, which brings us to point two. Which is what? The power of holiness. We move from possession to now the power. What is the power of holiness? Sanctify yourselves therefore. How does the book of Leviticus reveal to us the power of holiness? Which is truth. Did God give them a bunch of rules and regulations and Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system to be holy? Not first. He gave them the law as a revelation of His glory. The aim of Leviticus is to know the living and the true God. It's, it's the truth of God that's found in the book of Leviticus. If we approach the Bible first to know what God wants us to do, we have missed the entire point of the, of the, of the whole Bible. I think I need to say that again. If your aim in going into the Scripture is to learn what God wants you to do, you have missed the entire point of the Bible. That's a secondary issue. Paul gets it right when he's converted, doesn't he? The first question, who are you, Lord? Who are you? And then second, what do you want me to do? We go to the book of Leviticus not to find rules, regulations, and what to do. We go to find God because the the law is a revelation of God's holiness to show us our depravity, to drive us to the truth of Christ. It's our schoolmaster. And what does it teach us? The holiness of God, the impeccable perfections of God, and the depravity of ourselves, our condemnation, so that we run into the truth of Christ. We run to Christ. That is what Leviticus is for. It's to reveal Christ. So the power of sanctifying yourself, once we possess Christ, that's our identity, is the truth of God. The truth of God. And we know that the Bible is the progressive revelation of God. We're looking at the names of God. Jehovah Kadesh. God is revealing Himself. Because that's how we participate and pursue holiness is by means of truth. Now let's look at the New Testament now. John chapter 17, and Jesus, as we read this morning, is going to pray in relation to your sanctification and the apostles and the church in connection with truth. We know in verse 17, he says, this is Jehovah Kadesh, Jehovah Jesus speaking, saying, sanctify them, Holy Father, God, by thy truth, thy word is truth. Truth. Now right now, when Jesus says those words, He's referring to Leviticus in the Old Testament. Because when He wrote that, Revelation had not yet been penned in the New Testament. So the truth of the Old Testament is to sanctify us, and that's the word of truth. How does that work? What is our experience of being made holy progressively by Jehovah Kadesh, by means of truth? There's a positive and there's a negative here. 
Sanctify them with thy truth first means we need to know truth, we need to read truth, we need to understand truth, the truth of God. That's why we preach truth, that's why we pray truth, that's why we sing truth, that's why we fellowship over truth, that's why we exhort one another with truth, because the aim of truth is to sanctify us. It's to make us more like Christ. So we're not here just to meander and to uh, just have uh, something to do on Sunday. Jesus prays, use the truth, God, to shape them and mold them into people of truth or people of holiness, which means we need to understand by the Spirit of God, we need to know the truth of God. That means truth is important, right? To know what is true about God is important for us to grow in Christ's likeness or sanctification. That's a positive side. But negatively, Jesus said, I pray not that thou should take them out of the world, but that thou should keep them from the evil. Sanctify them with thy truth. Sanctification keeps us from the evil one. Now the definite article here probably points that the word here is referring to the devil. The evil, the evil one, which others suggest. If it's evil in general, then the truth is still stands because he's behind evil, isn't he? He's behind the gods of the Canaanites. He is behind Molech, the first god that is mentioned in Leviticus chapter 20 as the god that they were not to go a whoring or a whoremongering after. Now, what's the power to keep them from idolatry? Sanctify yourselves, therefore. Don't go whoring after Molech, which was much more than child sacrifice. You say, I don't think I'd be tempted with that. But the reason for child sacrifice was it was believed that Molech could bring you future prosperity. Molech was a prosperity gospel. How people could get to that point to sacrifice their own seed is a remarkable thing. Just points to our sheer depravity. But yet the motivation was prosperity. Something good is going to come into my life. It's the reason children are sacrificed today, whether in the womb or in the family. When they are not sacrificed physically, they're often sacrificed with time and, and other things. So Moloch was a real threat because of the uh, offer of prosperity and, and the, the pursuit of pleasure. And so God says, sanctification then will guard you against the evil one and against idolatry. But how? That's what we want to know, right? How? How does the truth guard you from the evil one? Well, we know it doesn't guard us from his attack or his sifting, right? Luke 22, Satan hath desired to sift thee as wheat, Peter, and so he did. So Jesus' prayer didn't keep Peter from sifting, and it won't keep you from it either. doesn't keep us from the losses and the pain of a satanic attack from the, from the wicked one. Job chapter 1, you know. The devil influenced the Chaldeans to come and kill Job's servants, take his cattle, and then the devil obviously brought fire from heaven. The secondary cause of all that happened to Job was the devil. The primary, we know, is the sovereignty of God. But yet the devil attacked Job. So Job was not kept from being attacked. What are we being kept from? 
if truth sanctifies us, then we're being kept from being unsanctified or unholy. Jesus said two times in this context, they are not of the world as I am not of the world. Twice, sandwiched in between is keep them from the evil. What does it mean to be unholy? It means you go back to the world. You're not of the world. Keep them from the wicked one who wants them to go back to the world. Now Jesus didn't pray we'd be taken out. We're in the world. We're not of the world. So to be guarded from the evil ones, to be guarded from being unholy, worldly, and apostasy. Right? Ultimately, the devil wants you to belong to him. Keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them with truth. Keep them from turning from the pathway of holiness. Keep them from going backwards instead of making progress in holiness. See, we're talking about the power of holiness is the truth of God. <clears throat> How does that work? Say, so we go to Leviticus and says, keep those rules, keep those commands, get those regulations in place. The devil can't touch me now. You know that's not true in your own experience. You know that. As much as we've tried sometimes, haven't we? You put on the rules, put on the commandments. Well, that's what it says. Why am I not kept? Why am I so easily taken back? Because truth is not sanctifying you. How does truth sanctify? Well, Jesus says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them. Because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. How is it that we are not of the world like Jesus is not of the world? Well, two ways. One is in the text, one is in John 15. Again, the choice of God. Like in Deuteronomy 7, He had chosen Israel, and Jesus says that about the apostles. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. How are you not of the world? You've been marked out and plucked out of the fire by the choice of God. That's how Jesus is not of the world. Isaiah 42 says, Behold my servant, mine elect, upon whom my soul delighteth. Jesus is the chosen one of God. You are the chosen one of God. So that's how you're not of the world like Jesus is. We're not in every way not of the world like Jesus is, right? But in this way, He's the elect of God, you are. And then secondly, Jesus says, You have given me your word and I gave it to them. We are not of the world because we've been given the word that sanctifies. First to the apostles, now to the church. Jesus gave us that word. So we're not of the world like Jesus is, as we both have the word of God, according to this context. But how does that sanctify you? We ask the question, what is the content? What is the focus of the word that's been given? Verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, And thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. I've given them thy word. 
I have manifested your name. The truth of God is the truth of the manifestation of God's holiness and His glory. Rules will never sanctify you. Commands will never sanctify you. I do not say commands are not important. The third point will get us there. The name of God sanctifies you. Verse 11. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them in your name. Sanctify them with your truth. The words that Jesus received of His Father that He gave to the holy apostles and the church is the manifestation of His name by which God keeps you. The revelation of truth. Verse 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in Thy name. What did He keep the apostles for? from? Apostasy, worldliness, unholiness. How? Through the manifestation of the name of God with truth. That's how you're kept, beloved. That's how you're kept. By the Holy Spirit, Christ coming to live in you, the engrafted Word, the implanted Word, the truth sanctifies us and keeps us from regression, keeps us making progress to glory. But what, what is it about the manifestation of God's name that really sanctifies us? Verse 13, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world. What things? The truth of God, the words he received from his Father, the manifestation of God's name that God will use to keep us future, that Christ used to keep them. I speak these things in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in them. The power of holiness, the power of the truth of God, is the joy of that name that keeps you from all the joys of apostasy. Because mark it down, apostasy happens because of joy. You just write it down. I'll bank everything on that from the Bible. And we have a case study in verse 12. And none of them is lost but the son of perdition that the Scripture might be fulfilled. He's lost. Judas Iscariot. He's unholy. He's not sanctified. He's worldly. He apostatized. Why? Because of joy. Just write it down. This is the power of holiness. Concerning Judas Iscariot, Jesus said, Have not I chosen you? And one of you is a devil. That means we find Judas in John 8.44. When Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, He's also talking about Judas because He's talking about the devil. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth because there was no truth in Him. There's no truth in Judas. He's unholy. He can't be sanctified. There's nothing there. John 5.38, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who are of their father the devil like Judas. You have not his word abiding in you. From whom he has sent, you believe not. 
There's no truth in them. There's no word abiding in them by which to be sanctified. And then finally, John 5.42. I know you, you have not the love of God in you. Let's put all that together if you're, if you're staying with me. Oh, it's kind of hard. I'll take a breath. Judas Iscariot is lost. Judas Iscariot has no joy in the name of God. Because there's no truth in him. There's no word in him. He does not love that name. He's destroyed. Why does he go back? Because he loves money. That's his identity. That's who he is. He's holding the bag. That's all he's about. What can I get out of this man who can do such miracles? And when he sees he can't get the money, he sells him for 30 pieces of silver. Why? Because the wicked one snatched him. He was not given to the son. Now, beloved, right here, we need to put a parenthesis here. This is so important. The reason Judas is lost is not because God didn't choose him. Mark that down a thousand times. Election doesn't condemn anybody. It rescues us. He's condemned because of what he loved, what he willed, what he desired, and what he found pleasure in. And it was not the name of God. <clears throat> now there's our case study, which means what? The way God keeps us from the wicked one, from apostasy and unholiness, <clears throat> and worldliness to going back in the pit <clears throat> that we came out of. Because we can love money, can't we? You don't have to amen that. We can love the pleasures of the world, the ones we shouldn't love. We can go put our feet back in the mud. But what rescues us from that regression? It's the truth of God. It's joy in God. It's the love of God. In us, that the truth causes to overflow and come out. Truth, the power of truth. We could call it the passion of holiness. Is the love of God. The love of God. So sanctify yourselves, beloved. Bring yourself to the truth of God. <clears throat> because God is sanctifying you with truth as we love and rejoice and find fulfillment in who Christ is and the joy of the truth of God, that He would love you and give Himself for you, that He would redeem you and forgive you, that He would draw you to Himself, that He would bring you into His holy presence. That is the power of truth. That is our experience. You say, well... Frankly, preacher, preacher, I've just got to admit, I haven't had that experience in a little while. What's Jesus doing here? He's praying. Ask Him, Lord, I've experienced that joy. Lord, I, I want to experience, Lord. Make me yours. I'm yours. Save me. Give me the joy of truth. Make it more than a bunch of rules and regulations. Help me to see Christ Give me the Holy Spirit. And God says, He'll give it to all those that ask Him. Say, so let's work out the theology there. No, He'll give it to all that ask Him.
I just take God for what He says. Just ask Him. When's the last time you ask Him? Lord, give me joy of truth. I read it. Show me a nugget. Show me something about Yourself. Because I'm looking for You. <clears throat> Judas was never looking for Jesus. The Pharisees searched the Scriptures for in them they thought they had eternal life. They weren't looking for Jesus because He said, They testify of Me. Are you looking for Jesus in the book? So my task, the task of the apostles when they preach is what? Manifest the name of God in such a way the Holy Spirit takes it and gives you joy. Because that's how you get sanctified. That's how you make progress. If you lose joy, what happens? Regression because you'll, you'll go back to the joy of the world. You can't be neutral. You ever tried that? I'm just not going to enjoy anything. Where's the food? <laughs> Where's the chocolate? You can't do it. You can't. So you can't remain neutral. We will be making progress, sometimes little by little, sometimes we're stagnant, and yet sometimes we've done what? We've gone back. And Jesus graciously pulls us back and says, get back in the truth. What happened? Why did you start going back to the pig pen? When I own you, I've given you truth, my Holy Spirit is in you, because you put down the truth. All you did was come to church, and you listened to about 20% of what was said, and you never consulted truth. And you're wondering why there's no joy in God. Because your joy is in everything else. Right? That's what happens to us. Well, this is not a, I've said before, this is not a sermon of condemnation. This is a sermon of hope. God owns you. He loves you. Amazingly. And Jesus prays, keep them from apostasy, sanctify with them truth, give them my joy. What is it? The joy of the knowledge of the Father and the all-satisfying presence of the love of God. That's it. And then lastly, the obedience, which is the, the practice of holiness, is obedience. Because the text says, be holy, sanctify yourselves, and keep my Commandments. Keep the commandments. So, possession, identity, power, the truth of God, joy and love now leads us to obedience. See, if we try to jump from possession to obedience, we're just a shell because the heart is far from God, right? You ever had that experience? Sure, we have. I'm singing those hymns, I'm reading that Bible, my heart is far from God. Why? Because I, I need to know truth in such a way that God is treasured, God is valued, God is seen, and God has been given to you for that purpose. If you could do that without Him, you wouldn't need Jesus to unzip you, walk inside of you, and zip you back up, because that's where He is. He's right inside of you for that purpose. That's the whole point of the covenant, isn't it? They shall know me from the least to the greatest. I will write my laws in their hearts and minds. Why? That they will know me in a way to treasure me, because they can't do it without me. I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. You don't love God without God. And amazingly, God's written it all over your heart. He's engrafted it so you can bring the external word together with the grafted word and experience, little by little, that fulfillment of belonging to God. So what strikes me, lastly, about this... Obedience 
the practice of holiness is that he says, sanctify yourselves, therefore, or yourselves. So rather than talk about all the ins and outs of obedience, which I will give a few examples here, it's yourselves, which means it's within Israel, it's community, it's community. God never designed for holiness to happen in isolation. In fact, I'm going to say it probably doesn't very well. It's by being a member of a New Testament church. You make a commitment to participate and sanctify yourselves. Isn't that something right there in the Old Testament? God's already pointing through the nation... What has replaced that nation is New Testament churches. You need others to be holy. Oh, how easy it is for the devil to tempt us. Worldliness is so easy, isn't it? It's so easy to be drawn into the allurements of the world. See, I need you to help me. And God knows that. I need you to exhort me. And you need me to do the same. And you isolate yourself, you're just going to do a Sunday thing, and that's it. Chances are you're, you're, you're moving regressively. Not really making any forward strides because you're not availing yourself to the very community that God has given. And of course, we can be part of that community and still not be part of that community, right? Sanctify yourselves. Now, if we were to go to the New Testament, to the book that is probably the best place to describe what's happening in Leviticus... What book would that be? The book that would tell us the most about sacrificial system, Levitical priesthood, the diverse washings and carnal ordinances. I gave it away. It would be Hebrews. Hebrews uses the expression, let us, more than any other book in the New Testament. Thirteen times, let us, let us, let us. Because you need one another to keep from going back. Which is what the Jewish people were doing. And right in the context of Hebrews 10, which we used at the end of the sermon last week, I'm going to turn back there, where we found permanent sanctification, sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all in verse 10. We find progressive sanctification in verse 14 of Hebrews 10. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are being sanctified. What do we find? Togetherness. In the same chapter. Verse 19. Having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God. I'm in verse 22. Let us draw near. Why? Possession of holiness. God has made you his to draw near Together, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he is faithful that promised. What's that? The power of holiness. Faith in what? The truth of God. Hold on, beloved. Don't give in to the wicked one. Keep moving forward. Let us go on to perfection. Hebrews 6. Let us hold fast by faith in the truth. What's the power of truth? Hebrews 3. For Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence 
and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. Rejoicing. That my joy might be in them. What's the power of truth? Rejoicing in what lies ahead. Having hope set before you. Having joy set before you like Jesus did in Hebrews 12. That's the power of holiness, which is by means of truth, because we find joy and fulfillment in the love of Christ. Hold fast together. This is not something you do alone. We do this together by the will of God. And then thirdly, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. The practice of holiness. Love each other. Think about someone else other than yourself. That's what my mother used to say to me. It needs to be said to me today, doesn't it? All you think about, Michael Allen, is yourself. She was right. Absolutely right. And I just proved it every day. The practice of holiness is you think of others and you act because God is acting all and you are acting all in sanctification. And you love. Holiness is a love of God through truth that you love others and you become a people set apart that magnifies the sufficiency and the holiness and the greatness of the majestic God who called you out of that darkness into His marvelous light and made you His people. The practice of holiness is obedience. And that's, that's at the end of the equation, isn't it? Because then out of the joy, we say to the devil, Get thee hence behind me, Satan. I belong to Christ. He will fulfill me totally and finally, and therefore I submit to His will. Be gone. I need you to help me with that. We're not islands. Oh, beloved, the obedience that comes in holiness is a community project. We need one another. Probably the worst thing that's happened for us is this, the idea of, of our right to privacy with the government, which is a good thing. I agree with that. But we, we've, we've transferred that over to the church. says, stay out of my business. You have no right to get into my business. <laughs> yes, we do. As it relates to Scripture. I don't, I don't mean you have to tell me your financial status and, and what you spend your money on, right? As it relates to holiness and helping one another... We should engage one another and share with one another our struggles and exhort one another. And that's what the writer says. But exhorting one another daily. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Not apostasy. Not worldliness. Not unholiness. Not departure. That's what they were doing. Some of them went back. But exhortation. One another. That's the practice of holiness. Now, I, I just close on reading this. What would this holiness look, look like then, based on what we've said? Holy people enjoying fellowship with the living God. I, I borrowed this from Stephen Cole and, and modified it a little for myself. I couldn't improve on it. Holy husbands sacrificially love their wives as Christ loved the church. They tenderly seek the blessing and benefit of their wives. Holy fathers show the grace and kindness of the Lord to their children training them to love and follow the Lord for their own good. Holy mothers nurture, cherish, and love their children. Holy wives submit themselves to the Lord and to their husbands and use their wisdom and skill to compliment their husband. Holy young people walk in the ways of the Lord, avoiding the terrible scars that come from sexual immorality, drugs, alcohol, and abusive relationships. Holy church members love one another, 
care for one another, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient, kind, and loving toward one another. That's the practice of holiness that flows out of possession, power, and passion, love, that produces practice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us.